Welcome to the We Are VIP podcast. Each week, your host, Casey Haston, Director of Recruiting at VIP, will bring you valuable insights from thought leaders, introduce you to incredible companies, and bring you tips for landing your dream job from our team of executive recruiters at VIP. And now, Casey Haston. Welcome to the We Are VIP podcast, a podcast devoted to adding value to your career or candidate search, brought to you by VIP. I'm your host, Casey Haston. I'm an executive recruiter, director of recruiting with VIP, and you're all around hiring guru. And once again, I have found you a nugget that you're going to love. You're going to learn so much from our guests today. So let me get right into welcoming Katie Campbell, um, executive leadership coach, C-suite consultant, and speaker. She has helped over 20,000 leaders and their teams transform their organizations and grow as leaders. With over 20 years of experience, Katie is known for her ability to help leaders use their gifts and strengths to achieve their goals and get the business results they desire. Thank you so much for joining us today, Katie. Thanks for having me, Casey. I'm glad to be here with you. I have been so excited to have another conversation with you. You and I just like went whoop, 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 whoop in our pre-interview call. That's so true. I've been looking forward to it. It's been a while, but I'm glad we're here and to get into it with you. So one of the questions I like to ask first, because I am really, really, really big on networking. How did we get connected? Sure. So we got connected through Todd Armstrong, who has been working with me for the past year to really help me with my business marketing and branding and really helping me to connect to really amazing podcast hosts. I knew that I wanted to do more speaking when I launched my business. And I said, Todd, you're the man. And he said, listen, you're in Texas. If you're going to be meeting with anybody or non anyone show, you've got to go and speak with Casey. So um, fortunately you had a spot and I'm really glad to, to be on with you. He is so super sweet, you know, and Todd, I've worked with Todd for years and he just, he's so good about helping people get on podcasts. But what I really love him about him, it's kind of like me as a recruiter, you know, I want to match the right candidate to the right client. Todd's really good about matching the right podcast, podcast guest to the right podcast so that he doesn't waste anybody's time. I think that's right. One of the things that I asked of him was, please make sure that I'm only talking to people who want to have interesting conversations. If you just want to talk about the basics of what my business is or a generic topic, that's not the right person. And he said, I've got some people for you and you were at the top of the list. So he has delivered a hundred percent. I am so glad to hear that. And I'm, I'm going to have to let him know. So we actually have his partner, um, C-Rock, who mm -hmm. also works with the people, is it Peopleistic? That's right. People building. People building, I was close, mm -hmm. people building. Um, C-Rock is actually coming to speak to, in person, to our organization here in Dallas, Success North Dallas, in August. So we're super, and that's because of Todd. That's amazing, oh, that's gonna be an amazing event. I know, I can't wait. <laughs> so, all right, so tell me about you and what you do, why, why are you on this show today? why I'm on the show. About a year ago, I decided I was really done working inside an organization and I really wanted to find a way to marry the things that I love, working with executive leaders, helping to coach them and help them get the business results that they're looking for. And I said, I really think I need to do this on my own and find clients who were really ready to take things to the next level. And it's kind of a weird thing to do on the heels of a pandemic. It was kind of a, a soft market. 
but I also knew that people were burnt out. Um, people had lost a lot of the joy and the magic in their organization. And I thought that's exactly what I want to help people do. I think that people should be happy at work. They should be excited to go do hard things, to go build things, to go experiment, invent, create. And I know that through the work that I do and some of the gifts that I have, that's exactly what I should be doing. And I want to do it all the time. And so, um, yeah, so launching my business is really what got us to this point. And I want to spread the message of how to bring magic back into the workplace and really the joy and the magic of leadership, because it's mostly who I'm working with back into the organizations where I'm supporting those leaders. LinkedIn that you go by. Calibri Magic is the name of the company. But what is your title? You're like Chief Magic. Oh, yes. Well, so, <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, that was a really interesting thing. Like, what do you call yourself? It's like, ah, I own the business. I'm the owner. So I said president because I thought, okay, that's great. That'll get you in whatever door and people take you seriously if they don't know who you are already. Mm -hmm. And then I'm also, when you get to know me, I like to have a lot of fun. I bring a lot of humor and laughter and playfulness into the work that I do. It's not silly, but it's appropriately like, can we just be humans with each other? And so when I was thinking about even what to name my company, the word magic kept coming up because when I would go into organizations that were really struggling from a cultural perspective, when I would go into work with the leader who was kind of on the, the, the verge of maybe getting fired or removed from their position, the, the mantra was, Katie, just go in and work your magic with them. Go in mm. and work your magic. Like, see, just sprinkle some fairy dust on them and see if you can get this team to like work together and gel. And so it was the minister of magic. I'm like, well, I'm in charge now of everything. So I'm the <laughs> minister of magic. And there's a little bit of a Harry Potter play into that because my daughters are big fans. So um, it always comes up as the minister of magic, but it really is a driving force behind how I do the work that I do. It's not about just coaching. It's not about just facilitating or um, running an executive retreat or even speaking in front of an audience. I want people to feel something differently about themselves and their work by virtue of working with me. So that's where that name came in. I love that you brought up Harry Potter and I'm just going to derail this conversation for just a second because <laughs> I, I did something really interesting when my kids were little, the Harry Potter series were just coming out and we had a trip to London. My kids were like six and seven, right? And they ended up being like masters of the tube at six and seven. Mm -hmm. We're like, okay, where do we go now? But we were reading the Harry Potter series and we go down into the tube and they were like, we've got to find nine and three quarters. And I'm like, do not run into the wall. You know, <laughs> <laughs> This is really just a movie. It's a great right? story, but it's really not. It true. wasn't even a movie then. We were reading the books. The books. <laughs> yeah. But they were like, where's nine and three quarters? And I was like, stop. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah. <laughs> no. That was like one of my favorite stories from their childhood <laughs> was when they were looking for that. Now I understand Honestly. you can actually, they've actually like set up like a picture opportunity where you can like pretend like you're running through the wall and all that kind of stuff. They but I haven't do. been so long. Ugh, that yeah. would be amazing. That would be, yeah. okay. So back to you. Okay. <laughs> See, I know we can go off on so many different tangents. We could just have a conversation. It would just be funny. Um, but all right. So after you started your company, so tell us what kind of services you focus on and that you offer with Calibri Magic. Sure. So principally, it's um, leadership coaching, executive advisory. So I, I partner with a lot of um, C-suite leaders, CEOs, presidents of their company to really help them think through their business strategy so that it's not 
a one-time strategic planning event, but it's really an ongoing conversation about how can they be steering the business in real time? Um, what I learned over the years of doing this work is that a lot of times people will hire people who are consultants or coaches, and it feels like a one and done or you know once a quarter or maybe an annual thing. And I think all of those things are great. And I do some of that work, but the business world moves so much more quickly than when you and I started out as professionals that those top leaders really need more input, direction, ideas, and strategic partnership that they can't always get from their internal um, executive leaders or, you know, and, and they can't always get from their board. So I end up being a sounding board for people to pressure test ideas for even just to do research. Um, when ChatGBT came out, I had half of the leaders I'm working with that would say, oh my gosh, how is this going to really disrupt what we're doing? The other half of the executives were like, okay, Katie, help us figure out how can we use this to save time, to help streamline hiring, to help our other partners and vendors. How do we make this work for us as opposed to being afraid of what's coming? Well, they're working on their business. They don't need, have time to always think about those things. And so I get brought in to either work in that kind of capacity. And then a lot of it is traditional executive coaching, like really partnering with leaders who are in it to understand how to mature their leadership practice, really get better at the, the business of leadership versus I'm just trying to get all the people to do what I want them to do <laughs> and show up in a way that organizations need it. And I think now more than ever, organizations are, are craving strong leaders and there's more that leadership requires. And so the mantle of leadership, I think is heavier. So having a, a partner and a support um, that's the role that I like to play to make sure that they've got everything in their toolkit and the, that they can use to really help to build, grow, and help make their organization thrive. So tell us a little bit about what you did before you started your own business. How did you get to this point where you are considered the expert in helping those emerging leaders? So it's interesting, my path to this, if you look me up on LinkedIn or you ever looked at my resume, you go, how did we quite get here? And part of it was I'm an opportunistic person. So when somebody says, hey, we have an opportunity for you to do something, would you like to? I say yes. So the reason I went from being a traditional general management consultant to working in the Pentagon and working with two, three, four-star generals at the age of 22 was because my boss said, hey, we've got a spot there. Would you like to go? And I said, Yes, like who turns that down, of course. And it just kind of snowballed from there. And I was married to somebody in the military for a time. And so we moved all over the country, like eight or nine states in um, about as many years. So I had the opportunity to see leadership in the federal government, the state government, um, in nonprofits, different types of nonprofits. And, and then consulting with organizations um, in the private sector, I, you know, it just, I kept adding up all these different places where I was not just doing the work, but my personal curiosity around what exceptional leadership looked like. I saw a lot of great examples of that starting my career at the Pentagon, but that really snowballed into then studying where it wasn't working well, when a culture was broken, where was the breakdown in leadership and, and what could I learn from that and help pour into you know, what I was teaching or consulting with in another organization. And then it just became this honest to God, it was a fascination of mine of saying, why is this working so well with this particular leader who is under-resourced and understaffed, but somehow they keep winning. And then you look at another leader who has their printing money and they can't keep the train on the tracks. Like, why does that 
happen. And so um, a former boss of mine would say, I'm a student of the game. I read every book there is about leadership. I study it in my free time because I wanna make sure that if I'm gonna go in and coach and help and support a senior leader in organization, that I can really stand on a firm ground to say, no, I've seen this example before and, and give, can give them really solid counsel or support. So what would be your top recommendation on leadership books? So I will tell you that over the last five or six years, I really spent a lot of time um, looking at not the kind of the peanut butter spread easy, like the basic blocking and tackling of you have to do one-on-ones and you have to reward and recognize your people. All that stuff is true. And I talk about that a lot with my clients, but I've been really focused a bit more on emotional intelligence and a lot about servant leadership and how that how that really shows up in the workplace and in leadership. And so um, The Heart-Led Leader by Tommy Spaulding, I think is one of the best books that really okay. breaks down what leadership looks like um, and, and through wonderful stories, real stories about real leaders, about how they've really been able to leverage skills around empathy and support and networking and um, showing up differently, not just showing up for the really big paycheck because they're the one in charge. That's one of my, that's one of my all-time favorites. Um, another one that would not seem to fit in that same mold is a book called Essentialism. Oh, I, oh yeah. <laughs> I think at this stage of the game, I think his name is Greg McKeon is how you say his last name. Yeah. I've sold more books for that man than he possibly could know. I should have right? like a Lincoln bio kind of thing. When I talk with leaders about, and I'm sure you see this too, managing their time, um, setting boundaries, um, saying no to things that they should say no to and saying absolutely yes to the things that they should. His book was a sleeper when it came out in 2014 or 2015. It took like two to three years before it hit the New York mm -hmm. Times bestseller list. And it it is like hip pocket, I think, for people to really figure out how do I set myself up for success and say, um, when you're saying yes to something that you're able to honor and keep those commitments, and then you're saying no to the things that are the kinds of things that lead to burnout, the kinds of things that are really wearing people down right now. So his book, Essentialism, I think is, pun intended, it's an essential leadership book. <laughs> no, <laughs> I absolutely easy. agree with that. I, I, I don't know that I would have thought of that as a leadership book, but I, I think you're right. That's a great one. And, and so since we're on the topic of burnout, when we had our pre-interview conversation, you referred to burnout in a way that was a little bit different. Well, okay, very unique to anyone else that I'd ever heard it called. And you you referred to it as crispy. That's how I, I feel um, that people, when they are burnt out, that's how they show up is crispy. Meaning um, they're short, they have tempers flare, um, you can see it in emails, you can see it in body language and affect and how people hold themselves. And they don't have the capacity to hold in anything else. If you think about it, if you've ever burned something, a, a piece of meat or vegetables or something and it or toast and it becomes like it disintegrates, right? It's crispy. It can't hold any more liquid. It's all gone and it will never receive liquid again and make it reconstitute. And that's how I see burnout has, that's, that is what I'm experiencing when, I, when I'm seeing people who will either report being burnt out or haven't waved the white flag yet, but we all know they're there. I, it, it, that's such a great analogy of what burnout looks like. And, you know, and I think back to people that I've worked with in the past and you're right. I mean, they show up and it's like the slightest thing 
can set them off and we say we're walking on eggshells for another cliche, but you really feel like when you're around those people that you are walking on eggshells constantly because you don't know what's going to set them off. And, and you know, I, and I don't know that I recognize that as being a, a symptom of burnout before. It is. And then I, I think what, what I all say, so I connect burnout though to, and you know that I love everything that has to do with emotional intelligence. I really connect it to all of that work and, and that really that body of work, because when people are burnt out, it means that they're not taking care of themselves in multiple ways. It also in an organization, it means the organization's not taking care of them either, or the conditions by which they have to work or the culture says that they have to work is really not conducive to being able to hang on to all of that, uh, all, all the responsibilities and all the things that they need to do as a function of their job. So when, um, in fact, I just talked to a colleague yesterday who said that their organization was going to start requiring people to come back to the office, which is not a new thing, but they used to be that if you lived within 20 or 30 miles from the office, they said, you got to be back two or three days a week. You can pick whenever you want. Now they've extended that to be a hundred miles. So if you think about somebody who is, and I know a couple of people in that organization who are new parents, who are going to be traveling 200 miles at least in rush hour, both ways they're in Washington, DC, it's gonna be a nightmare. And so now if you think about, they're gonna go home to two young kids and a spouse, they've spent hours in the car, they spend hours all day at work, and they're gonna be largely on Zoom calls with people who are not in the office that day. And then they're supposed to have the emotional capacity to be a great spouse or partner and to be a great parent and to help create a great meal and clean up from dinner and do all the things. It's unrealistic. And that's just one instance of one person. And they're not even a, in a very senior leadership role, but this is what I'm seeing over and over and over again. And where the personal side of it comes into play is if this person is not um, exercising, eating well, if they're not taking care of their emotional health, um, just in their, you know, regular time when they're not doing all that, reg you know, the, the crazy commuting, this is the recipe for burnout. This will mm -hmm. happen within a couple of weeks that this will not be sustainable. And it has impact either in their work performance, usually, um, how they're showing up to the rest of their team. So just being a good colleague, it shows up and then it shows up in all the personal relationships too. And so being a parent, just being a spouse, just being a friend and a neighbor, this is where we're getting. The, the ripple effect from just that one instance is massive. So now you think about millions of people in the workforce who the, right now it's upwards. I think Gallup, the latest Gallup poll said 70% of the workforce reports feeling burnt out. Mm. So 70% of people who go to work every single day are reporting burnout. And now we're expecting them to be great citizens. We're expecting them to be great members of their community um, and to produce wonderful results for their organization and just make it all work. And it's not working. This way of work is not working. I, you know what? I could not agree more. And I mean, I think a lot of times the, when we get calls from candidates that are starting to look, I would probably say 50% of the time it's because they took a job during the pandemic that was fully remote. And so they weren't worried about the distance to the office. And then here recently, after they'd been there a year and a half, two years, the company says, oh, now we want everybody back in the office, resulting in an hour and a half commute. And that's that's three hours in the car. That's a day. That's that's on not a good day. doable. On yeah. a good day. It's not. It's not healthy. We know this. We knew this before the pandemic, too. So the pandemic gave everyone a relief, but then it also allowed people to pick their heads up and say, 
wait a minute, there are different ways of doing this. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm not ever here to suggest that everybody should be remote or hybrid or anything else. I work with a lot of construction and engineering and design companies. Well, they're on site, they're building buildings, they're renovating things. They're like making stuff physically present and happening. Mm -hmm. They can't work remotely. But in instances where people were able to achieve some sort of balance during the pandemic, a lot of that is getting stripped away. And it, and I don't know how you and all of your colleagues who were recruiting for companies are, are managing that because you don't make the rules that these companies have about where and when and how people work. But that's exactly what people are asking for is a different way to do it so that they can live and be human and be healthy, but then also show up and do a great job um, in their role. Yeah, I mean, the best thing that we can do is we can coach our clients about you know, what we're seeing in the marketplace. But on the Canada side, whenever we're interviewing our candidates to see if we want to represent them, that's one of the first things we ask. What do you, what, what works for you? Are you okay with mm -hmm. onsite? Are you okay, okay with hybrid? Are you, or do you want to be completely remote? And then we start matching according to their preferences. Cause I'm not going to send somebody who wants to be hundred percent remote to a company that's hundred percent onsite. That's right. a waste of everybody's time. Right? Exactly. So, but I want to go back to the emotional intelligence real quick because, I mean, you're obviously an expert in this field. Um, and a lot of people don't know what emotional intelligence is or what EQ is. I think it's referred to now. Um, right. So what is it and why is it this skill so important? Okay. So I'm going to answer those questions backwards a little bit. And, and here's why. If you went to Google right now and you typed in, top leadership skills or essential leadership skills. What will come out in the top 10 or so responses are things that's either emotional intelligence as a term, it'll say things like empathy, flexibility, um, being able to manage your emotions. So all this stuff rolls up to emotional intelligence. And the weird part about that term and what I've noticed over the last 20 plus years is that people tell you how important it is and they don't tell you what it is beyond a very puddle deep definition. And they don't tell you how do you improve in emotional intelligence. And the reason why I love it so much as a leadership skill is not just because everyone says it's the most essential one, it's because you can actually develop it. It has nothing to do if you're an introvert or extrovert, if you're a red or a blue or a lion or a chicken or whatever, <laughs> you know, the personality <laughs> test tells you that you are conscientious, a maverick, it, it, all those things are great, but this one is one that you can, you can develop. And really when I'm talking about emotional intelligence, it's about understanding the emotional data that's in your life. So that's the emotional data that's running through you. How am I, what am I feeling with precision? Not just I'm good, I'm fine, I'm okay, but like I'm feeling anxious, I'm feeling excited, I'm feeling worrisome, whatever the thing may be. So understanding your own data, understanding the behavior that comes from that. So when you're anxious or you're excited or you're anticipatory about something, you do different things, right? So if you're anxious, you might wring your hands, you might sweat a little bit, like what happens? So understanding all of that data and making decisions about what I'm going to do with that emotion. So that's step one. Step two is being able to recognize that with other people. So, you know, me sitting here and thinking, okay, so what is Casey's emotional state? What do I think she's feeling? And when she's feeling that way, what kinds of questions does she ask? Is she bubbly? Is she serious? Like what's going on with her? because that will help me decide how do I want to show up with and for Casey. And so it's the ability to do that dance back and forth between all of Casey's emotional data and her behavior and all of Katie's emotional data and behavior in relationship with each other. So if we think about this as a leadership skill, 
all day long, we're working with people, mm -hmm. right? We're guiding, directing the work, we're supporting them. We're um, trying to take care of them as a whole person. We're trying to create career paths for them. We're trying to create opportunities for them. We're trying to get them to do really great things for the money we're paying them for. And so in order to do that really well, you can't just dictate things to people and beat them over the head with a stick. You've got to be able to do the emotional dance back and forth with them, but it really first starts in understanding yourself before you can do it really well with other people. And so as a, as a leadership skill, it's one that I like to, to teach and, and work with leaders on because you can always manage yourself. You can't control what other people do, mm. but if you can get into really great self-management and understanding what's happening inside of you from like a emotional data perspective, it's easier to make better choices that are, um, that are more authentic to how you want to show up in the world. I think that's beautiful. So I want to share something I do with you that I do every morning with you. And I, and I want your opinion on how it relates to emotional intelligence. Okay. Okay. Every morning as part of my morning, my miracle morning, which we're not going to go into that. Everybody knows I've talked about it ad nauseum, miracle morning, go get the book. Um, but anyway, um, I write down how I'm feeling. First, I, I, I meditate and then I go to my journaling practice. And that's one of the first things I write down is how am I feeling today? I also set my intention for the day. And then I do my gratitude. But I want to make sure that I'm really in tune with where I'm at and I own it. If I'm not feeling good, I, if, if, if my feelings are bad, like I think today I wrote confused. Mm -hmm. But that's where I was. And so... And, and overwhelmed. I was overwhelmed. I had a lot going on this week. Right. Right. So then you have a foundation now to say, okay, so what do I want to do with that data? You could just say, I, I got a whole agenda. I'm going to let it go and I'm just going to go with my day and I will do the best that I can. Or it might be, let's say you're overwhelmed and you said, I know I've got this interview with Katie later and I really want to talk to her. I'm going to try and reschedule. I, I, I think I, you know, I'm, I'm going to reschedule and I'm going to give myself some space. That's a, it's a mature way of looking at your, your own emotional health and what your needs are. But this is where people, when they don't do those things, when they're not doing the scan to say, how am I feeling? What is that? When they're not thinking about what's my intention for the day and going forth in that way, when they're just kind of winging it, which mm -hmm. is what a lot of people, it's what most people do is what I'm finding. Um, it becomes really difficult then to get a handle on all, get, basically get a handle on all the things that, that are overwhelming them. So you talk to people and they say, I'm overwhelmed, but they can't tell you why. I think if we don't have to do this right now, but if I asked you, what are all the things that are overwhelming you? I'll bet dollars to donuts that you could sit there and tick off all the different things and say, it's this, it's this, 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 and this. And if I then said, okay, so Casey, what are you going to do about it? I also believe that you'd have a plan for what you're going to do to not have the next couple of days be as overwhelming. You're setting yourself up in a very beautiful way to make it so that in the middle of the day, if that overwhelm or the confused feeling came back again, you could sit with that for a minute and say, okay, what do I want to do with feeling confused? Mm -hmm. How can I get more clarity? What I need right now is clarity. That's what I want. A lot of people would just be like, I'm confused. And then they go into the next meeting. Yeah. So it's beautiful that you're starting that way. And I'm hoping everybody is taking notes because what you're talking about are some foundational practices that I work with my clients on to really start to understand just their internal emotional state. And so um, beautiful example. I'm so glad you shared that with everyone. Thank you. Thank you. So in your opinion, 
Is emotional intelligence the most important skill to have in leadership? Yes. Yes. And I, I would not have said that years ago, but I do lots of reflection on how did I get to where I am right now? And how do I know what I know? One of the things that I learned very early in my career working with the military is the people who are, are generals and admirals and who are in very senior leadership positions will often get put into a position where they don't have the technical expertise that everybody else that works for them has. What they do have is expertise in how to motivate, inspire, take care of people, and, and, and move, the, move the whole system forward towards a common goal. They can't always program computers. They couldn't tell you all the ins and outs of AI. They know that you know the United States Air Force sends, sends people into space, but there are people who help to run the space program who've never been there and who probably couldn't qualify to go there, but they're exceptional leaders. And so they, but they do that through emotional intelligence. They do that by the way that they use their own emotional data and other people to, to again, like to inspire and, and, and really move people along. So the expectation in my mind is that, yes, do you need to have technical expertise to kind of get to where you're going? 